writing to the early church about the power of prayer, the Apostle John said, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. So according to John, whatever you ask God for, according to His will, that's the key, that's what you're going to get. James, the brother of Jesus, said the prayer of a righteous person has power, great power, he says, as it is working. James 5.16. Of course, Jesus himself said, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Mark 11.24. Clearly, prayer is powerful. Because it's more than simply asking a benevolent God for good things. Prayer, according to Scripture, is a catalyst for change. Real change in our lives. Change in our circumstances. Change in others. Prayer is powerful. And yet, do you know of all the prayers that you could ever pray in your entire life, one of the most powerful, effective prayers of them all, is also one of the simplest. In fact, you can pray this prayer in three simple words. Lord, change me. That's it. Lord, change me. By the way, that one simple prayer is one that he's sure to answer every single time. And so for that reason, listen, don't pray that prayer if you don't mean it. You know why? Because that prayer is almost never answered when everything is going our way. It isn't. Because when everything is going your way, there's no motivation to change. Which is precisely why the most significant and lasting changes that happen in our lives typically happen during the hardest times of our lives. It's true. Because the most difficult of days are when we are the most desperate for change which has been true, by the way, for human beings throughout human history, as we'll see in our story today as we continue to work our way through 1 Samuel, where David is being hunted relentlessly by King Saul, even though he's done nothing against the king. In fact, what David is going through is profoundly unjust and unjustified, and yet God is allowing it to happen. Why? Because although David had been chosen and anointed to be king by God, David wasn't ready to be king. David needed to change. There was growth and maturity and wisdom and training and shaping that needed to happen in David's life before he could be the kind of king that Israel needed. And yet that change wasn't going to happen by playing an instrument for Saul in the king's court, living in the lap of luxury being constantly celebrated by all the people of Israel for his great successes in battle, right? Why would you change anything? When everything is going your way, there's no reason to change anything. So the king turns against David. The king he's been serving all this time, his own father-in-law turns against David. His own wife turns against David, as we'll see in the coming chapters. Many of his own people turn against David. His own tribe 
turns against David and he's living as a fugitive on the run, hiding out in caves in the wilderness while everything he's ever known and loved has been taken away from him. And now, now he can't even get a decent night's rest for fear of being discovered and killed for crimes against the king that he didn't even commit. And because of all that hardship, David is desperate for change in his life, which is how it works. See, it's the hardest times in our lives that produce the greatest potential for change in our lives. It's true. It's the hardest times in our lives that produce the greatest potential for change in our lives. So listen, don't waste them. Don't let the hard days go to waste. Let God use the hardest of days to change you in the best of ways to shape you into the man or woman that the rest of us need you to be. This is what David was learning, and it's what we're meant to learn as well. When life is hard, that God works all things together for your good, especially the hard things. But listen, you have to let him. You have to let God shape you. You have to let him change you through those most difficult days to the point that you're never the same again. We're talking about change that becomes so deeply embedded in who you are that you never go back to who you were. Because look, this whole, uh, this whole season of David's life on the run, as hard as it is, it, it isn't for his punishment. No, it's for his benefit. And for ours as well, by the way. Do you know how many of the Psalms David wrote during this period of his life? About 30. See, these incredibly hard days in David's life was God doing great things in David's life for him and for us, but I guarantee you it didn't feel like it. Just like it doesn't feel like it, uh, like God is doing something great in your life when you're going through something hard, but he is. <laughs> he is if you'll let him because with God, nothing is wasted. Everything has a purpose and ultimately that purpose is always for your good, to change you to the point that you're never the same again, to shape you into the person the rest of us need you to be. Why? So that the whole body, as the Apostle Paul says, so that the whole body, that's all of us, you and me, when each part, he says, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, Ephesians 4.16. So let's pick the story up where we left it last time and see how God changes David in the best of ways through the worst of times and how he will do the same thing for you if you will let him. 1 Samuel 24, beginning with verses 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
He had said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Uh, the Engedi Canyon runs west from the Dead Sea and with a good-sized creek and there are plentiful waterfalls, lots of lush vegetation. Engedi was almost a paradise in the middle of the desert. And if you were following the story last week, you'll remember that David and his 600 men were able to escape to Engedi as Saul was closing in on him because the Philistines were attacking Israel at the same time. And so Saul had to break away from pursuing David to deal with the Philistines. And of course, now that the Philistines have been dealt with, Saul is back to his main objective, to find and kill David. And through his local intelligence network, Saul is informed of David's whereabouts in the wilderness of Engedi. And so Saul assembles 3,000 of his best soldiers in all of Israel. These are the elite special forces that Saul takes with him in an army five times the size of David's just to be sure that David will be dealt with once and for all. And they travel over 30 miles to the wild goats rocks where there are caves dotting the hills of Engedi, And they come to the sheepfolds where there was an especially large cave, large enough, in fact, to shelter a flock of sheep or in this case, an army of men. And Saul enters the cave, the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. And of course, Saul is there to relieve himself, which means he's there alone. And David's men immediately recognize that this is no coincidence. This has to be the Lord providing them the perfect opportunity to kill Saul, to end their misery of living life as fugitives, and for David to finally take the throne that is rightfully his. So they tell David, this is it. This is your chance. Go and kill Saul and we can finally be free. And so in the cover of darkness, David sneaks up behind Saul, which probably wasn't all that hard to do because just outside there are 3,000 soldiers with horses and armor and weapons. And so it would have been anything but quiet inside that cave with all the sounds of the army and their animals reverberating throughout the cave. And of course, David knows that. So he walks right up behind Saul and very carefully cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, which actually was a much bigger deal than it would seem to us because the royal robe was a symbol of the king's power and authority. And so cutting off a corner of the robe signified a transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. Okay, this was a, a profoundly subversive act against Saul, not to mention the fact that Saul's robe was now no longer in compliance with the Torah requirements for royal attire in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. And so in this one simple act of cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, he, David renders Saul's robe legally unwearable. And symbolically, he invalidates Saul's claim to the throne at the same time. This was a very big deal. And it was probably meant to be a precursor to taking off Saul's head but through the difficulty of leaving his former life behind while trying to lead and provide for 600 men in the wilderness and being hunted by the king and his army at the same time through some of the hardest days and most restless nights of David's life, God was changing David's heart. From a man who not too long ago, you'll remember, 
cost an entire village their lives because of his deceitfulness at Nob to a man who now cannot bring himself to kill Saul, even though everyone and everything in his life was pointing him in that very direction. So not only does David not kill Saul, but he's overcome with conviction for even cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Listen, his men are having none of it. Their attitude is fine, David. But if you're not going to kill him, then get out of the way because we'll do it for you which is evident by the fact that David then has to persuade his men that what he just did was wrong, and then he forbids them from attacking Saul as well. And while David is explaining all of this and holding them back, Saul gets up and walks out of the cave and begins to lead his army off. Okay, this is a different David than the one who lied to the priest at Nob, pretending to be on a secret mission for the king. The David who pretended to be insane in front of the king at Gath because he was afraid of being killed. The David who questioned God about sending him to defend Keilah from the Philistines because his own men were too afraid to fight. The David who was slipping into depression after the people of Keilah and the people of Ziph turned against him. Because look, as hard as all of that was, David was allowing the most difficult days of his life to shape him, to change him into the kind of king that Israel needed, right? Because look, if David had allowed himself to just keep taking what he thought he was entitled to whenever it was available to him, which is what he started out doing, then whenever he did become king, Israel would have ended up with nothing more but the same because that's the exact same kind of king they already had in Saul. And so if David was going to be the kind of leader that Israel needed, then David needed to change. And the only way David was going to change was if David wanted to change. And the only way any of us ever wants to change is when things are not going our way, when life is hard. And so it was through profound hardship that David's heart was changed. And it's the same for us today. Right? People want all kinds of things in their lives to be different. But look, your life isn't going to change until you are willing to change. Your life will never change until you are willing to change. And you can just about read through the Psalms and see David's life changing before your eyes. And the more difficult life was, the more his heart was changed. Even in this incident with Saul, notice that David isn't sparing uh, Saul's life because Saul deserves it. No, David spares Saul's life because he finally recognizes that to fight against Saul was to fight against the man that God handpicked to be king before David. To defeat Saul's kingship was to try and defeat God's own will. And David was beginning to see that even with the perfect opportunity to kill Saul and end his own suffering in the darkness of that cave, David was beginning to see more clearly than ever. And his heart was forever changed as he humbled himself before God and his men and in a moment before Saul himself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how hard that must have been for David 
after everything Saul has done to him. And now he finally has the opportunity handed to him to kill Saul, which nobody, by the way, would have faulted David for doing. Even Saul's own staff would have probably preferred that David go ahead and kill Saul. But he didn't. Because God was changing David's heart to become the leader the people needed, whether they realized it or not. A leader who would put God's will before his own will. A leader who would humble himself even before his enemies. A leader who would do what was right instead of what felt good when those two things were not the same. And look, you realize the vast majority of our problems come from us doing what we want to do. Most of our problems are a result of us living the way we want to instead of the way God tells us to. So look, just because you have the freedom or opportunity to do something you want to do doesn't mean you should do it. If your heart, if my heart, immediately inclines to what we want instead of what God wants, then guess what? Our hearts need to change. Because look, when you, when you put yourself in what you want before other people and what God wants for them, then you're cutting off a corner of that value that God assigned to that person when he created them, and instead you're taking it for yourself. So what David was beginning to realize, as messed up as Saul was, it wasn't David's place to remove Saul from the throne. Are we back? <laughs> it wasn't David's place to remove Saul from, from the throne. And through his own hardship, David's heart was humbled and forever changed. So look, the truth is, it should be heart-wrenchingly difficult for us. It should be painfully difficult. In fact, it should be almost impossible for us as God's people to criticize and tear each other down. And yet in our culture, and I mean our, in our church culture, We've become experts at tearing our brothers and sisters in Christ apart when we think they're wrong. We should be ashamed of ourselves. How has it become so easy for us when, whether face to face or through other people or through social media, how has it become so easy for us to look at another human being who bears the image of God himself? Someone who shares the same spirit of Christ that is in us. Someone who God loves so much that he sent his own son to die for. How has it become so easy for us to look at that person and then tear them to pieces because they disagree with us or think differently than us about some issue or preference? Do you understand the church is sacred? Not the building, the people of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have no right to profane those who were crafted and created in the image of a holy God. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. No, there, there should be such a holy reverence among us for the people of God that even the thought of criticizing one another should stop us dead in our tracks. I'm not talking about, by the way, holding one another accountable with compassion and love and humility. Of course we do that. No, I'm talking about tearing one another down with needless criticism. Besides which, 
Criticism has never led anyone to Christ. But it sure has driven a lot of people away from him. So look, sometimes God allows you to walk through some really difficult days. Why? Often it's to change your heart. To understand some of what other people go through in life. To begin to see them in the way that God sees them with a heart of compassion and grace and love. A heart that puts others before ourselves even when we don't always agree. Which is the church that this world needs right now more than any other time in our lifetime. In fact, that's, that's how the world is supposed to know who the real Christians are. Jesus said it this way, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you're always in agreement about everything. That's not what he said. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you vote for the right candidate. That's not what he said. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 15. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father... See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So after David convinces his men not to kill Saul, he walks out of the cave. He calls out to Saul, who's now a ways ahead of him. You want to talk about uh, taking a risk because David has now just given up his location and that of his men as well. And so if Saul decides to attack with his 3,000 special forces, it's game over. David and his army have nowhere to go. But David is determined to do the opposite of what everyone else thinks he should do. And so instead of killing Saul, he honors him. David gets down on the ground in the ultimate sign of respect and bows down to Saul and then refers to him as my lord the king, the Lord's anointed, and my father, all in the same conversation. In other words, David publicly recognizes Saul as king over Israel, my Lord the king. He recognizes him as the man chosen by God, the Lord's anointed, and he recognizes Saul as one in direct authority over him, my father. Saul is evil. What Saul has been doing is evil. He's a terrible leader. He's doing everything wrong. He's oppressing the people. He's, he's horrible. David says, you are the king over Israel. You're the man that God chose for this time. And you are in direct authority. 
over me. And then he makes the case by showing Saul the corner of his robe that if David had meant to harm Saul, then they wouldn't be having this conversation because Saul would already be dead. Instead of gloating over the fact that he just spared Saul's life, he points Saul right back to God. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? A flea? In other words, you and I both know, Saul, that God has not only anointed you, but he's anointed me too. We were both chosen by God, which means what happens to you and to me should be up to God alone, not up to you or up to me. May the Lord therefore be judged and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Okay, what David's saying here is, look, Saul, as long as you're trying to kill me or if I were trying to kill you, the person we'd actually be fighting with is God, not each other. Because your life and my life, you understand that was God's idea. Your anointing and my anointing, that was God's idea. When you rule and when I rule, that's God's idea. And when you leave this earth and when I leave this earth, that is God's decision. It's not mine and it's not yours. This was actually as much a plea from David for Saul to save himself as it was a plea for Saul to spare David. Because if David had learned anything in these darkest days of his life running from Saul in the wilderness, it was this, that God is in control. And the sooner we humble ourselves before him and recognize his absolute sovereignty in our lives, the sooner our will comes into alignment with his will. It's a hard, it's a hard lesson to learn. But once he learned it, David's attitude was changed. His attitude toward Saul's life, his attitude toward his own life, and his attitude toward the people he was leading had changed because now David is leading out of a place of great humility instead of a place of pride or fear or doubt as he had been. Now David's will is aligned with God's will. And remember what we read at the beginning of this message. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we've asked of Him. You, listen, you want your prayers to be answered? Then pray according to God's will. You want to know what God's will is? Then humble yourself before Him, and He will show you. It's part and parcel with God fulfilling what He's promised to do in your life. It's part of what makes you ready for the next big step in your journey. Humility. The Apostle Peter said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. First Peter 5, 6. By the way, Peter wrote that to the church in a letter that is all about suffering, about enduring hard times. He was saying, look, the best thing you can do when life gets hard is to humble yourself before God and each other and seek his will. And then when God decides the time is right and you are ready, he will lead you where you're supposed to be. Right? David was going to be king, but not until God decided David was ready to be king. Right? David couldn't make it happen, and Saul couldn't stop it from happening because God is in control. And they both needed to learn that. So look, whatever plan God has for your life, whatever dream he's put in your heart, whatever the next big step in your journey is, one of the requirements for being ready for that next step is humility. In fact, do you know 
The only people who God opposes are the proud. In the previous verse of the same letter, Peter says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. Actually, over and over and over again throughout the Bible, in one form or another, Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud. Which means if you're struggling with pride, no matter how hard you work to get to that next big step in your journey, until you lay your pride down first and let God change your heart, you're actually working against God because he opposes the proud. So look, for instance, if, you're, uh, if your marriage isn't working, until you humble yourself before God and your spouse, your marriage isn't going to work. It's not going to get better. It won't. If you're wanting your sphere of influence to increase in your ministry or at your work, look, until you humble yourself before God and the people you work with or minister with, then your influence is never going to grow. Okay, if you're wanting to be used in a greater capacity in any area of your life, until you humble yourself before God and those who are a part of your life, your capacity to handle more than you've been entrusted with now will never increase. Listen, even if your talents and capabilities increase, you know why? Because God opposes the proud. And I'll just tell you, when the person standing between you and progress is God, you're not going to get very far. So along comes a crisis, difficult days, hard times. And instead of rushing in and sparing you those hard days ahead, God lets you go through them. Not because he wants to punish you, but because he wants to change you. And nothing will motivate you to want to change faster than hard times. In fact, I'm sure most of you already know from your own experience that hard times can be incredibly humbling. I've learned that more times than I care to remember in my life. Well, listen, sometimes that is by design. Often that's what difficult days are meant to produce in us. Hearts that are forever changed, humbled toward God and toward others. By the way, why is it so important to God that we're humble? Well, I'll tell you why. Because anything less than absolute humility on our part is us taking glory for ourselves that belongs to Christ alone. It's like us trying to cut off the corner of his robe, which is why God opposes the proud, because he will not allow us to take for ourselves what only Jesus deserves. The author of Hebrews said it this way. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing, everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. In other words, God will give you every single thing you need to live the most amazing, beyond your wildest dreams, adventure of a life you could never imagine on your own, as long as who gets the glory for it. Not you. Not me. Jesus Christ alone. That's why God opposes the proud, and that's why you won't ever be able to get to that next step 
in your journey without humility. Charles Spurgeon once said, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 16 to the end of the chapter. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. You have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David swore this to Saul, then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. So immediately after David shows Saul the corner of his robe and makes his case for his innocence, Saul is emotionally broken because his eyes are open to just how wrong he's been and the evil of his treatment of David. But he doesn't stop there. Saul goes on to affirm David as heir to the throne, the very thing Saul has devoted his life to preventing. It's a shocking turn of events, albeit short-lived, as Saul will once again go hunting after David in the near future. But David can't control what Saul does, right? He can only control what David does. And so when Saul asks David to spare his offspring when David becomes king, without hesitation, David agrees, which was not common practice at the time. In fact, it was just the opposite. In uh, ancient Near Eastern custom, an incoming king would kill off all the potential rulers from the old royal house. It was a slaughter, day one, and it was expected. But David agrees to forego the customary practices of the day, even to his own potential peril, and save Saul's descendants from certain death, which was also a confirmation of the oath that David had made earlier with Jonathan back in chapter 20. And one that David uh, honors, by the way, when he elevates Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, to a position of honor later in 2 Samuel 9, which was completely unheard of, and unexpected at the time. For David did not only keep alive, but to honor the descendants of the previous king who did everything that he could do to kill David. That was almost unthinkable. But you see, through, through those long, hard days in the wilderness, David's outlook was changed because his heart had changed and his attitude had changed. And look, when your heart and your mind come into alignment with the heart and mind of Christ, your whole outlook on life changes dramatically. You'll start making decisions about your life that you never would have made before. Decisions that defy conventional wisdom and cultural norms because what matters most to this world is no longer what matters most to you. And look, making those kinds of decisions and then following through, decisions to love those who hate you, Decisions to humble yourself and lift others up. Decisions to give more than people think you should. Decisions that defy the ways of this world. Those are often signs in your life that you're ready to take the next big step in your journey. When your outlook on life changes so much that what matters most to God is now what matters most to you. And it shows up in ways that make no sense to many of the people around you. 
That's often when God begins to turn things around in your life, as we'll see with David in the next chapter of the story, which was all, this was all a part of God shaping David, preparing him to become the next king. And the changes were profound. At times, they were profoundly painful. But in the end, David would never be the same. Because those changes in David's life would ultimately shape him into one of the greatest leaders in all of human history. And I guarantee you, if you could ask David if it was worth it. All that time David spent running for your life. Hiding out in the wilderness. The long days just trying to stay out of sight. The long nights wondering how you would care for all these people for one more day. People who we'll see in the future were going to stone him at one point. No doubt about it, those were hard days for David. Some of the hardest, but I guarantee you, if you could ask him today if it was worth it, he'd say yes. Because every one of those hard days brought me closer, one day closer to the next big step in my journey. One that would not only change his life forever, but the lives of God's people ever since. All because David was willing to change. The question is, are you? Are you willing to let God change your heart, your attitude, your outlook on life in order to become the man or woman he created you to be? Are you willing to go through some hard days if that's what it takes to get you to that next big step in your journey? It's always the hardest times in our lives that produce the greatest potential for change in our lives. And so look, if you're going through something difficult right now, I'm telling you, if you'll let him, God will use your hardest days to change you in the best ways. Even when it doesn't feel like God is doing something great in your life, he is. He is if you'll let him. Because with God, nothing is wasted. Everything has a purpose, and ultimately that purpose is always for your good, to shape you into the man or woman that the rest of us need you to be. All right, so look, you don't have to like hard times. But don't despise or deny what God is trying to do in you through those hard times. Because He wants to change you. He wants to change you for your good and for His glory. Until those changes are so deeply embedded in who you are that you never again go back to who you were. He wants to change you because he loves you. He wants to change you because he knows what you're capable of. He wants to change you until you're never the same again. Let's pray.